0: Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone and this is Built Not Born episode 102. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Lubell. Andrew Lubell, MD, is the chief medical officer for the True North Medical Group. Dr. Lubell has been recognized as a top doctor by Philadelphia Magazine for the past five years. Dr. Lubell and I discuss his personal journey. From being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a child to his career as a pediatrician that shaped his passion for improving the health of thousands of children in the Philadelphia area. Dr. Lubell shares some great ideas on how to raise healthy kids from promoting healthy eating habits to making sure your child gets quality sleep to emphasizing the importance of vaccination and keeping tabs of your child's mental health. Dr. Lubell and I also discussed the business of medicine and why it's such a challenge for small private practices to operate in today's environment. It is a fun conversation with a ton of useful and practical ideas to help you and your child live a healthy life. I was so excited to get Dr. LaBelle on the show. He runs one of the largest pediatric practices in the Philadelphia area. He is a wealth of knowledge on how to raise healthy kids. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Andrew Lubell, chief medical officer of True North Medical Group. And remember, life is built, not born. Dr. Andrew Lubell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Lubell. for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: I am a pediatrician by training. And I practice out in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, in a private practice that my partner and I started together in 2002. And prior to that, I practiced in a group called Erdenheim Pediatrics. And that group started way back in 1982 to provide care to children from premature birth all the way through 21 years of age. And so that's what I've been doing for the past 25 years. And I guess I'm also sort of an entrepreneur and that may be a rarity in medicine these days, but I have an interest in the business of healthcare and how that can impact families in a sort of more global way. And so about five years ago, we started thinking about how pediatricians and neonatologists can impact the community, not only through direct care, but also through taking care of larger communities. And so we started a group called True North Medical we formed this True North Medical Group and its ability to start to think about growing in the pediatric community. And about three years ago, we had an opportunity to buy our first practice in Montgomery County. And from there, we have grown our presence. And really the the motivation behind this with my partners was to allow private practice pediatrics to flourish in an environment where, in particular in pediatrics, most of the practices are either joining hospital groups or being bought out by Venture Capital. And so our mission was really to allow pediatricians to do what they do best, take care of patients in an environment where they can take the time that they need to take care of patients and keep the ownership of these practices local. We're now in seven locations, and we are going to be in likely 10 locations by the spring. At the same time, we realized that in order for us to be successful, we needed to think about vertically integrating our healthcare. And so we started an MSO, and so that company is called MCA. And MCA does medical billing, not only for the True North Medical Group, but about 50 other practices across the country, both in pediatric care, neonatology, and some adult and specialty care. We do credentialing, we do billing really anything around the back office of medicine can be accomplished through the Medical Consultants of America, which is our MCA group.
0: There is a lot to unpack there. Thank you for that. <laughs> wow, you got so that was, the, that, was the,
1: that was the brief introduction to, to what I do. I'm the chief medical officer for that group. What I'd like to do, let's just get right to it.
0: I'd like to talk about A, the business of medicine. Like you said, it is so rare these days to have a private practice let alone any subspecialty, but for pediatrics, because mm. everything's hospital-based. Let's talk that the business of medicine, the billing too, the MCA, I find fascinating. How often have you met an amazing physician that just can't collect their bills? You know what I mean? They can't get their copays. They the hey, bill. Well. So much, right? Amazing doctors that just don't have the business side down. It's a different skill set, right? Yeah, good business yeah. person might not be good at medicine, but a great person in medicine might not be a good business person. Let's do that. But before we go there, of all the subspecialties, how did you choose pediatrics?
1: So at the age of nine, I was diagnosed insulin-dependent diabetic. And so very early on, hospitalized, started treatment for my lifelong treatment for my diabetes and was introduced to the medical world at a pretty young age, to a pediatrician who made the diagnosis, who was just an astounding human being, and then an endocrinologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, who was also just an incredibly compassionate, bright woman. And so from a very young age, I said, I want to take care of people. And more specifically, I want to take care of children. So sort of the most vulnerable in, uh, you know, in our population and also sort of the most uplifting. And as I went through my undergraduate education and eventually into medical school, I quickly realized that if I'm gonna be up all night taking care of patients, I wanted to be pediatric patients who are smiling at you at two o'clock in the morning and their giggles are, are infectious. So for me, it was a no brainer that, that there was no chance I was taking care of adult patients at that point. I originally thought about taking care of really micro preemies. I was gonna be an immunologist. and and actually had a fellowship spot at Children's Hospital after I finished my residency, and then just decided that it was time to go out and start taking care of patients. And once I started, I really never looked back. My thought process was always to be full-time pediatrician, taking care of families, watching them grow, the sort of the gratification of eventually taking care of multi-generations of the same family, which I have now had the pleasure to do. Somewhere along the line in my career, I made the decision that after running a business that I wanted to really impact the business end as well. That interest led me to the current group that that I'm partnered with, who are both phenomenal physicians and also all of them have their MBAs from pretty prestigious places, most of them from Penn or Harvard. These are really bright business minds who also happen to be gifted physicians. So I've been very fortunate to have learned from them and to have partnered with them over these last five years.
0: You mentioned getting the MBA. You start to see doctors now, when you see their lab coat. You see the MD or DO, PhD. It's not uncommon to see MBA in that string of letters now. It really is, it.
1: Yeah, so I think the hospital systems and insurance companies have kind of forced the hand of physicians to go back and get that further training, so that they can be on a more level playing field. And we realized really early on that without scale you really have no chance to negotiate both on the contracting side and the purchasing side. We've known from the get-go that we were going to need to scale this in a meaningful way and relatively quickly in order for us to be successful and allow our physicians to practice in the way that they want to practice and not feel like they're a hamster on a wheel.
0: Yeah. How common is that these days where the physician feels like, they're not sick of taking care of patients, but they're sick of the, the business side of things or what they're held to, RVUs or something like that. And, yeah. uh, and they almost want to get out. You have these great doctors that just maybe don't have the passion that they had before just because not from treating patients, but like the business side kind of wears them down, right?
1: Yeah, there's no question. And if you don't have really good staff around you that can navigate some of that for you, it can burn you out really quickly. And I think for people who are full-time physicians and just want to take care of families, that extra burden is usually the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so if you're in your late 50s or early 60s and you know what it was like to practice before the insurance companies inserted themselves between us and our families, people refer to those as the golden years of medicine. It's hard to not want to wrap things up and, you know, and maybe do something else with your medical degree.
0: How common is it where, like you're a physician, you see a patient, you diagnose them with X? And you say, when I see X, Y is my treatment of choice. But then their Mm -hmm. insurance company denies it for maybe another product. Maybe it's inferior, but it's cheaper on their policy, right? And then you have to make a prior off, or your staff is on the line for an hour waiting to hear someone from the insurance company. Can you speak to how frustrating that could be?
1: So it's not just that they make you jump through the prior off. Sometimes it's You have to fail three other medications in order for us to get the medication that would have been the best choice to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it's really impactful for patients. They have to go through trials on medications that have side effects, medications that are less efficacious, and all to circle back to the medication that was rightfully the right medication to begin with, because the bottom line is the insurance company knows most physicians and most families will give up at some point that fight so they can save that bottom line dollar for themselves. And so it's extremely frustrating, especially you're on the phone, not to demean anybody. Everybody has an important role. But when you're on the phone with somebody who doesn't know anything about medicine on the other end of the phone, you're not talking to a physician, a nurse, or even a medical assistant. You're talking to somebody who has no medical knowledge, and they're telling you what you can and can't do with a patient, which can be incredibly frustrating and anger producing. So I think if you have good staff and they can take some of that burden off of you Um, which is something that we try to do as we continue to grow this network is have care managers and folks that are expert in doing those things. And our motto is we want everybody to work to the top of their degree. We want them to use their knowledge base. We want them to be working at the very top of what they've been trained to do. So if a physician is being asked to sit on the phone for an hour to get a prior authorization for an ADHD medication, that's not working to their potential we want to make sure that all our folks have the opportunity because that's what's fulfilling for people. Nurses don't want to be on the phone doing those things. They've worked hard for their degree. They worked hard and trained hard. We want them to work to the top of their degree. Mm-hmm. So that's really our motto is to take care of families in a way that is meaningful to them and provides good care, but also allows some meaning for the folks that work for us so that they feel like they're fulfilling what their destiny was in their professional lives.
0: If we could speak to the subspecialty of pediatrics. Yeah, the, like I've always found when you're a pediatrician, but just from outside looking in, you got you're treating two patients. One, you're dealing with the parents and the kids. Right. It's like a group session every time right. you're in there. You got to talk to the mom and the dad. Could you speak to that dynamic? I always found that dynamic so unique. Where yeah,
1: and that and that dynamic changes over time. So you know, you're treating the newborn. You're treating the first year of life. You're basically treating the mom and dad almost hundred yep. percent. And then the kid moves into toddlerhood and you try to engage them a little bit more and give them a little bit more of your time and energy in terms of discussion and getting to know their personality. Eventually they move into school age and then, you know, middle school, high school. And then you really want to be engaging them directly and as the parents in the background with the hopes that when they turn 18 and they're coming to see you without a parent, that, you know, that there's an engagement there, that they trust you. They've had years of engagement with you and that you've given them the time and the energy when they were younger, you didn't dismiss them and just speak to the mom and dad. Because when you do that, that dismissive sort of attitude comes back at you when they hit 18, and they don't really want to listen to what you have to say, right? So, but there is quite a dynamic between mom, dad, and sometimes even the next generation, we have grandparents who come in, they have a different agenda. So (laughs) everybody's got an agenda, you have to meet those needs. And hopefully, bottom line is that you're delivering good care, in a way that is not offending anybody along that line. Grandparents, parents,
0: et cetera. I think you have at least minor in psychology to be a good pediatrician. Oh my goodness. So one thing I find so unique about pediatrics is what makes someone healthy. They eat right, they sleep right, they get their immunizations, their mental health or behavioral health online that you mentioned earlier. If you get that locked in early, in general, you're going to be a healthier adult. So let's talk about maybe some hot topics Let's talk sleep. That is, I have three kids. That was just such a huge topic of when the baby was born. Could you discuss some tips? Maybe if someone's out there has a baby or a toddler, even a teenager, if you could discuss those phases on how to help them or they can get a better night's sleep.
1: Absolutely. So the first thing is that there's no one right approach to sleep. You can have 17 children in your household and each one of them is going to be a different sleeper. And sometimes we know good sleepers right from the get-go. You hear the story, my kid slept through the night at two weeks, right? First of all, 90% of those stories are not true. Everybody has selective memory, right? So when your neighbor tells you their, their kid slept through the night at two weeks, take that with a grain of salt. Cause sometimes there's a lot of aggravation attached to how come his kid can sleep through the night two weeks and mine can't, right? Yeah, so, so selective so memory. The second thing is that routine is everything around sleep. So setting good sleep parameters for your kid, not only setting those parameters for them, but also showing them in your household that there are good sleep routines for the adults as well, right? And then setting those routines at a relatively young age. So we typically start talking about really doing some sleep training as young as four months. Mm -hmm. So when the kids hit that four-month mark, we start talking about what does your bedtime routine look like? Are we doing bath at night? Are we nursing at night? Are we then rocking the baby to sleep and then kind of lowering them down into their bassinet or crib and walking out of the room trying not to wake them? So that seems like the natural thing to do as a first-time parent or even multiple children in your household. But what we're teaching them is, okay, we're going to lower you in. We're going to crawl out of the room. And then when you get four or five hours into your sleep cycle and you get to that light stage of sleep, you're going to wake up and not know what to do. So you're going to panic and start screaming. And then mom and dad are going to come running in and it develops this vicious cycle. So we teach them how to have good bedtime routine and to allow them to kind of Self soothe themselves at that bedtime, even if it means a little bit of fussing and crying. And that sets a good base for sleep all the way through childhood and into adulthood. So it's really, we talk a lot about routine. We talk about sleep regression. There are certain ages where kids will regress in their sleep patterns. There are also certain times where they'll regress based on what you've done with your family. We know when you travel, you're going to come home, it's going to be a couple of bad nights. We know when you have an acute illness, whether it be a viral, Illness or a bacterial illness, there's going to be a different set of rules during those times where mom and dad are going to comfort you, where we want you to comfort them. And then we're going to have to set the rules again. So, re sleep training, we talk a lot about that as well. But those are the sort of the sleep rules that we try to put in place for families. And I think the other thing that you learn quickly in medicine is that there is no black and white, right? Everything is gray. And parents are very black and white. They want you to tell them exactly what to do. And I always tell them, look, every child is different. Things are gray. These are the general rules. And then we're going to kind of tailor them to the personality of your individual child.
0: That's great. So just to recap there with sleep, routine is everything. Set some parameters right around four months. You start the bedtime routine talk. There's no one perfect answer. Every kid's a little different. You mentioned the sleep regression. Say a kid comes home from the hospital and they're just sleeping like a champ. When's that regression usually come through?
1: So Sorry. we sometimes see some sleep regression around four months, okay. and then we definitely see it again in that nine-month period. So right okay. around eight or nine months, we usually see some sleep regression. And one of the other big mistakes that first-time moms and dads make, including me and my wife, is that every time the child – say you have a child that has reflux in the first year of life. And so mm-hmm. you're thinking, what kind of a parent am I if he's up in there in, in his crib and he vomits or he has a spitting-up episode? So we coddle those kids until they're in their toddler years, and then we try to sleep train them. That's a really tough thing to do. Because once they are fully verbal, and they can pull themselves up, and they can potentially get themselves over the side of a crib railing, or they're in a toddler bed, it's really hard to maintain rules. It can be done, but it's much more difficult than if you do it at a younger age.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And if you get the sleep right, or not even right, but you get it in a good place, that changes everything. Like for the dad, the mom, whoever's in the house, the brother, siblings, you could go a night without good sleep, even a weekend. But like you go three weeks. I know one of my kids was not a good sleeper. Three weeks, we won't say his name, Luca, you're missing red lights. Like, you're driving, like, I think that was a red light. And I just went through Like, you're so... No question. So,
1: give you an example. My wife and I, both pediatricians, we did residency where we didn't sleep for 35 hours at a time. We were like, ah, having a child is going to be a piece of cake. We've gone through the worst of it. And then we had our first one, and he wasn't a great sleeper. And we were like, this is so much worse than residency, (laughs) because it's every night. It's not like every third night. It's every night. There's no escape.
0: That's so funny. When we had our first kid, just like you and your wife, we were friends with a couple that were physicians and they go, oh, we'll be fine with the sleep stuff. We just got out of our residency. And they said the same thing. This is not like residence. It's every day. It doesn't stop.
1: It's, it's so much worse. And the other thing is that, you know, it takes a village to, to raise a family. So if you have aunts, uncles, grandparents in the area, don't be shy about asking for a night or two of help. It always helps to get a night's
0: sleep. I remember my parents came over once and this is when we just had first one and like a month in and we're not sleeping. They volunteered. They came over and did the night shift. Like at eight, they came over like at eight o'clock and they said, go to bed. We yep. slept to like six the next morning. They were up all night with the baby. They got up like, they didn't fall asleep. They just stayed up all night and took care of the baby. And that was like one of the greatest nights of like the first year. I was like, oh my gosh, a full night's sleep was amazing. It's the best gift your parents could have given you. Oh, it's amazing. It's ama- <laughs> it's the best gift. No need for a holiday present. Let's move to another really important topic, diet. Yes. Maybe, you could maybe just on tips on how to get your baby toddler, maybe even your teenager, just good practice on healthy eating? What do you got there?
1: So the first thing I will tell you is that some of this is also very baked into the personality of the child, it can also be baked in somewhat to underlying medical issues. So for instance, a child who had reflux in the first year of life very often have texture issues when they start hitting the age where they're going to be eating food from the table, and they may not want to take certain textures. And so those are kids who when we hit those challenges, The pediatrician and the family should recognize that we need some help and getting folks involved. So whether it be a speech pathologist who can work on eating in the first year of life, or an occupational therapist that can work on textures with them, there are lots of tips and things that those folks can do to help move past those things. Because they're very common, and they're not easily overcome by just setting down hard, fast rules. We're going to eat this in my house. And if you don't eat this, you're not going to eat. So that sort of was a very 1950s generational thing where this is the meal, you either eat it, or there's nothing else behind that. Or the other one is, we're going to put down a certain amount of food, and you're going to eat all of it. Yeah. And But mom, I'm full. I don't want any more. You're going to take two more bites or three more bites, right? So those are all very generational things that we saw even early on in my career were very common. And I think really what we recommend is starting foods relatively early and giving a a broad variety of food. We know introducing food allergens at a younger age is good, both from introduction of food, but also more importantly, to allow your immune system to become accustomed to those foods. So you build some tolerance to them. And then inevitably towards like middle of the 15 months To about two years, there's going to be those kids that become picky, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to a food that I loved on Tuesday. I'm not eating on Thursday. That's a very common scenario too. And my advice to families is that it's not about the foods 90% of the time. You're coming into a developmental stage with kids where it's about the choice and control. Mm -hmm. So kids around that age want to control what's going on in their environment, whether it be, what am I going to wear today? Or what am I going to eat or drink? When am I going to go to sleep? Those are all the control issues. And the less you make those control issues a battle, the more chance that you're going to have a peaceful home environment and a kid who eats and sleeps better. So I'll give you an an example of something I might say. You're going to feed the kid a vegetable, a protein, and a carb for dinner. And child's two years old. I'm not going to eat that. So instead of handing it to them and saying, this is what's for dinner, I would say, put that same meal on two different color plates. And say, Johnny, which color do you want for dinner? You've already made the decision, but Johnny feels like he now has control of the situation. Which color sippy cup do you want to drink out of? The green one or the blue one? The contents of that sippy cup are identical, but Johnny feels like he just won. Anytime you can give them a win where you actually control the decision, you de-stress the situation and you allow for a happier household. Those are some of the sort of little sort of generalizations that I try to impart on patients and I think our providers do in general, but there are still going to be those kids who are more picky and there are those adults that are more picky. I have an adult friend who's in his forties who orders off the children's menu when we go out to dinner. I mean, that's just his, he's been that way ever since he was a little kid and he's never changed. Is that optimal? Absolutely not. We want you to get your calories from whole foods if you can. So fruits and vegetables obviously are important. Um, lean protein is important. In younger kids, it doesn't matter so much the fat content. In fact, in the first two years of life, they want to have a relatively fatty diet because that allows for normal sheathing on the neurologic system. So that's why we keep you on whole milk until two and we keep you on full fat cheeses, etc. But as the kids age, we want to model behavior. So if you're in a household where dad only eats cheeseburgers every night for dinner and pizza every night for dinner it's gonna, you're going to be hard pressed to say to a 14 year old eat your vegetables try to eat more fruit have a healthier diet when you know you're modeling bad behavior right same thing goes for environments where mom and dad are not careful about obesity right so you know some of this is genetic and we we know that but If the household motto is we just eat, 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 it's hard for them to have an expectation of your child that they need to do a better job than, than you're doing. So modeling good behavior, I think, across the board is important, whether that be around tobacco products, alcohol, diet, exercise. We always try to model the best behavior we can. And I think physicians many, many years ago were a bad example of that. If you looked at the average physician, internist, pediatrician, Less pediatricians, but internists, family medicine. In the 1950s, they were, for the most part, they were obese and smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So that modeling of behavior, I think, is also important.
0: Yeah, just to recap, there a couple of things. One, start early with a variety, like you say, like a carb or protein, vegetable, and then model good behavior. You lead by example also to give them choice. I love that idea where it's like a blue plate, a red plate. What plate do you want? They feel like they're in control. You also said something I thought was interesting there. You said something like add the allergens or the food that potentially could cause some sort of allergic reaction. When I know when I was little, peanut butter, the whole class of peanut butter, there was no such thing as a, at least we never heard of a peanut allergy. But now like, where's peanut butter? Is peanut butter given early? Like, which your Yeah. So we stuff? went
1: through a period of time where the American Academy of Pediatrics and Allergy were recommending waiting on those highly allergic foods until the kids were two or even three, particularly in families where there was a food allergy history. And so in doing that, we actually created more of a problem than we are solving. And if you looked at other societies, whether it be the Far East or the Middle East, where they introduced peanut oil almost from birth, the incidence of peanut allergy was negligible as opposed to the high incidence that we had here. So in the last few years, all of our thinking has gone back to where it should have been, which is introduce those allergens as early as six months of age. So we often introduce peanut powder and cashew and almond. Very early, we start to introduce cow's milk, not in the way of changing from breast milk, but introducing cow's milk products like cheese or yogurt, much younger than we did before. With the notion that the immune system, which we've known this for as long as we've known about the immunology of humans, needs to build tolerance. And so if you don't give it exposure, it can't have an opportunity to build tolerance. And then when you do eventually expose it that far down the line at two or three years of age, You're going to have a much more extreme reaction. So I think you're going to see over the next generation or two, a significantly decreased number of nut allergy patients, egg allergy patients, the things that are highly allergic. I think you'll see those numbers come down significantly. And I think we're already starting to see that
0: get mm-hmm. back, say when we grew up, were there peanut allergies? They just weren't recognized? Like I never heard of that till I had kids. Like Yeah. You know? So
1: there were some, there were yeah. some, I think the numbers were smaller. If I had to look statistically, I couldn't give you the number off the top of my head, but definitely if you look back to my childhood, your childhood versus your kid's childhood, where the peanut allergy, they were right in that time period, my kids and your kids yeah. of we were not introducing this. And so the incidence was at its peak. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, so that's why. And I think the reaction, societal reaction was wow, peanut allergy reaction can be potentially fatal. We have to take an extreme measure here. And so we started having classrooms where everything was peanut free. There was the other side of the camp that believed look, these children are going to grow up and go out into a world that's not peanut free. We need to teach them how to avoid these foods. We need to teach them how to protect themselves without making their environment sterile. Sure. So it makes sense to take the peanuts out of a classroom in kindergarten, where everybody smears it over their face, the table and each other's faces. <laughs> but by middle school, when you you should be old enough to understand that your peanut sandwich goes in your mouth and not your neighbor's. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily was good policy. That makes
0: sense. I appreciate that. How about moving on? You mentioned immunology a couple moments ago. Let's talk immunizations. Definitely hot topic. How important are they, maybe best practices, and you could touch on like the, how important the flu vaccine and talk about the COVID vaccine. What's a young parent got to know about immunizations?
1: So the first thing to know, global sort of overriding topic is, are these things safe, right? And do they actually have benefit? And the answer to that is, overwhelmingly, they are probably the most important thing that I do for a child over their 18 years that they're with me or 20 years that they're with me is Mm -hmm. immunize them. There's nothing I can do for them that is going to protect them better than immunizing them. We know for 60 plus years or more that these vaccines that we're giving, some of them a little younger, some of them as old as that, um, are extremely safe. If you look on a societal basis, the number of people that have reactions to these vaccines of any kind is low. The number of people who have hypersensitivity reactions where it could be potentially life-threatening is infinitesimal compared to the number of doses that we give. The vaccines don't contain products at this point. So the aluminum issue that people talked about for a long time, there are a number of heavy metals that people were concerned about in some of the solution that we use to make these things more antigenic. So your immune system recognizes them, So those things are no longer really a concern in the way that we're making vaccines today. And the most recent way that we make vaccines, which really came to light with COVID, was using mRNA and reproducing these things through a genetic code, which is fascinating science, is very clean, and exceedingly safe, and is not new technology, despite what um, certain parts of the population are espousing. The COVID vaccine turned out to be an incredible lifesaver, as is flu vaccine, the COVID vaccine was produced in a timeframe that was unheard of before that. 10 years was the average time from the start of research on a particular organism to the vaccine to prevent it. And so this was turned around in the matter of months to a year and was highly tolerated extremely well by the vast majority of the population it was given to and probably saved tens of millions of lives across this global pandemic. I would say that again, there's nothing that we do in pediatrics that's more important than vaccinate children. I'll give you some examples. When I was a resident at Children's Hospital back in the late nineties, it was not unheard of for me to do an ER shift in the, in the Children's Hospital emergency department and have to do at least two to three spinal taps in a shift for kids coming in with hib meningitis, pneumococcal meningitis, meningococcal meningitis. It's almost unheard of for a resident. To have to do a spinal tap even more than once or twice in a year, or sometimes in their whole residency in today's day and age, because the vaccines are that effective in preventing what are bacterial infections that are life-threatening. Meningococcal meningitis, for an example, the vaccine is incredibly effective, very well tolerated, and the mortality rate with meningococcal meningitis is 35%. Whoa. So... I can tell you countless stories about being in an ambulance after having transported babies and children back from outside hospitals with meningitis and unfortunately losing them in the ambulance or losing them upon getting to the hospital or losing digits or losing hands or feet from these infections. These things are rare now in vaccinated children. So again, there's nothing more important that we do than vaccinate the population.
0: A few years back, this might have been five, six years ago, where that autism and vaccines was a big talk. Yes. Where now did that come from? The aluminum? Where, where did that? So come? that was
1: that was mercury. Okay. So people were concerned that there was mercury containing vaccines, and that that might have been a trigger for autism. And so, very large multi center studies have been done to look at the MMR vaccine in particular, which was the one that was implicated to see is there any link between MMR and the onset of autism. We know autism is a genetic predisposition and that likely something triggers that gene to turn on. And then we have an abnormality for the rest of your life. So that's not different than most other autoimmune diseases, whether it be diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis, all have some genetic predisposition that gene gets turned on. But in those multicenter studies across multiple nations, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children, there has been absolutely no statistical correlation between the MMR vaccine and any spectrum disease of any kind. So I think that's been long put to bed. The problem five or six years ago is that there was a researcher out of England who published a couple of papers saying that there was a causality there. There was a link. He has since gone to jail because he was falsifying all of his information. Mm -hmm. So um, that was completely debunked. the notion, sort of the anti-vaxxing notion that we're causing harm with these vaccines is really unfounded in any good scientific paper. But the flip side of that is any doctor that tells you there's no risk to vaccinating your children is not being honest either. Mm -hmm. There's always the risk you could have a reaction to a vaccine, an untoward reaction. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly rare, but I would never tell a patient, you have to do this vaccine and there's no risk. I would tell a patient you're going to give this vaccine to your child because it's overwhelmingly going to protect them against life-threatening diseases. And the risk is infinitesimally low, just like getting on an airplane, yep. right? There's always a risk when you get on an airplane that that plane is not going to land safely, yep. but the risk is infinitesimally low, right? Yep. So we get on the plane because the reward is great. You know, you're know, you going to spend six hours to get to California, not three days.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's great. I appreciate it. This last topic I wanted to throw at you regarding health is mental health. You spoke about behavioral health, What you're, the work you're doing there. How best for a parent with a kid at any age to check in with their mental health? And maybe any signs that a parent should look for? Maybe it's time to maybe seek professional help of what's going on with their child.
1: Yeah. So Joe, that's a great question because there is nothing that is more profoundly affecting adults and children right now coming out of this pandemic than yep. their mental health people were locked away, isolated, lost loved ones. It was a catastrophe across every family, whether you were touched directly or the people next door were. So I think it's really important. And it all goes back to what's the communication like between you and your children? Is there an open line of communication? Is there a feeling? Does your child know that when they come to you with a problem, you're going to problem solve with them and that you're going to try to come up with the best solution? Or are they going to come to you with a problem and know that there is going to be retribution or a punishment attached to everything that they talk to you about? So I think that open line of communication is the very most important thing. And then certainly, in school-age children, red flags, children that are not sleeping well, and that's out of character for them. Children who lose appetite and start to lose weight, and that's out of character for them. Children who their personality with you changes. So they used to be very congenial and amenable to things and wanted to be a part of the family and interact. And they're withdrawing from those interactions, whether with you and the family or or their friends. Those are all big warning signs. And then the last one would be if their academics start to fall off. So often the schools will pick that up. Not being big brother and watching every grade that walks through the door, because I think that's problematic as well, but certainly having some oversight and knowing, hey, you know what? Johnny was an A student, and now all of a sudden, he seems to be a C student. He's not really completing assignments anymore. I'm getting calls from school that he's showing up late or he's skipping. Those are all signs that something more is going on, whether that be anxiety or depression, or they've gotten involved with a crowd that's using some sort of substance. Those are all things that should be red flags for family. And pediatricians should be an ally in that, raising those issues, helping you to problem solve. and then if it's something that needs expertise outside the pediatricians, getting you to the appropriate next referral. Yeah, And we have some behavioral health folks that we work pretty closely with that are relatively new to our area that have done a great job in helping us unpack the incredible waiting list of people that are suffering. And getting to these folks at a young age and putting a plan in place can impact the rest of their lives.
0: Oh, without a doubt. Just to recap there, one, it's great, no matter what age, you want the parent, especially with school age children, to be like an have an open line of communication with their kids. You want the parent to be a safe space where like you can go to the parent, they don't freak out. It's not judgment right away. It's just you're listening to hearing what's going on. Some of the red flags to look for, did they stop sleeping or their sleep pattern changed? They're not eating, maybe their personality changed, they detached, and maybe someone who was engaging detached. Maybe their grades go down, maybe not just for a test, but like you see it overall go down. And if you see that, maybe you could utilize your pediatrician as the quarterback, bring it to their attention, then maybe they can hand you off to a great behavioral health professional from there.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's great. That's great. I appreciate that. Hey, just want to transfer over real quick to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. So So our listeners get to know you a little bit more as a person. Sure. Andrew, you got so much going on with your eight practices, 10 coming up. You treat patients in the clinic. When you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do?
1: I go out on the water. Yeah, how so? So I've been a boater since I was a young kid. My parents were boaters. We grew up on the east end of Long Island. We spent our summers on the water. We spent our vacations on the water. That was sort of how we vacationed. And uh, I, you know, I've taken that to my family. We spent 10 years spending our summers in the Chesapeake. And now we spend our summers down on the water in the Jersey shore, either boating or going to the beach. And that's my happy place to be out on the water. So
0: oh, that sounds fantastic. Great time of year for that. Just start yes. off. That's so I'm good. So good.
1: How
0: about most high achievers like yourself have some sort of routine, either to start their day or to end their day? What does either like the first half hour of your day or at the beginning or the end of your day look like? What's your routine?
1: Yeah, so I'm I don't know if I'm an early riser but I'm up by 6:15 usually 6:30 at the latest. I don't start seeing patients till about 8:30. So my routine is uh, get up, shower, shave, get ready for work and then I like to come downstairs and get a quick snippet of what the news is for the day. So I have sort of my my CNN snippet of the hot topics for the day and I try to read those. I used to read those in an actual newspaper but now I read them on my phone yep. over my breakfast. I'm not a coffee guy so have some water, my vitamins, a big bowl of Cheerios with my almond milk, and then I'm off to... I get to my office pretty early. So I'm in the office by about 20 after seven. And that's a time for me to be there by myself, make sure that anything that needs to happen that's non-patient related, whether that be reviewing charts, whether that be uh, making some early phone calls, taking care of some of the business end of the practice, those are things that I like to do when the office is quiet. So that's my hour to... I say I accomplish more in that hour... Then I do the rest of the day in non-patient related work. I get my one working partner, Jake Peltzman is my business, he's the chief operating officer for us and he's a a wonderful friend and partner. And he, him and I usually will take at least 15 minutes of that time to huddle in the morning and just say, hey, what's on the horizon? What needs to happen this week? What needs to happen this month? What needs to happen like in the next 15 minutes? Where are the fires (laughs) that need to be put out today? And so that's really important time for him and I in the morning. And then I feel like I'm ready to hit the ground running at 830 with patients coming through the door and I can put on my clinical hat and not worry about those things for a few hours.
0: How great is that one hour you just give to yourself because you got there early before patients, before you do all your important clinical work, that one hour just to organize your day, your life, your practice, right? How awesome is that?
1: I I can't, I, I can't imagine what it's like. I have doctors that work for us that walk through the door at 829 for their 830 patient. And they come flying through the door like a hurricane. And they're ready to roll. I just there's no way I could function like that.
0: I'm with you, man. I need that hour just to just to organize the thoughts and get the voices in my head just in the right spot. You know, (laughs) how about so great? How about when you look out to the year ahead with all the stuff you got going on? What's the most exciting project you're working on now?
1: So I think we've done a good job of kind of the analogy that my partner and I talk about all the time is we've smashed all the rocks together. So all the practices are under one umbrella, we're under one roof, we're doing all the billing, we're growing at an exponential rate, now it's time to operationalize this. And what I mean by that is, it's time to make sure that all the practices are practicing similarly, to make sure that everybody has what they need in terms of the equipment that they need to deliver the care they want to deliver, and hear from the providers What's their vision to continue to to increase their presence in the community and their vision to provide care that maybe we're not providing at this moment? So I'm excited about that next piece for me as the chief medical officer to operationalize the medicine side and make sure that we're giving the absolute premium care to the community that we possibly can give. And I think that our contracting and our purchasing is going to put us in a place where we can have the wherewithal and the funds to do that in a meaningful way that wouldn't have been possible when we were all individual practices. All right. So that's very exciting to me, besides the, the growth that I know is coming over the next 12 to 24 months, as we continue to scale this for the pediatricians in Montgomery and Bucks County.
0: Wow, that is great. Good luck with that. That is exciting.
1: Thank you. How about this? Andrew, what
0: advice would you have maybe for that college student or even a high school student? That's thinking, I would love to be a doctor, but I don't know if I want to go into medicine today in the the current environment with just with the insurance companies and all the obstacles we discussed over the last hour. What advice would you have for someone that maybe would be a great doctor somewhere down the road, but maybe he's having second thoughts about entering the medical field?
1: So I think that dedicating your life to taking care of patients is still a noble thing to do. And I think that it will lead to a fulfilling professional career. It'll lead to a fulfilling life for you. And I think going into medicine for the right reasons is probably the most important thing. And so doing some soul searching. Am I looking to go to medical school because I think that being a doctor is going to allow me to drive the car I want to drive or live in the community I want to live in, which there are lots of professions that can do that for you? Or am I going into medicine because I really want to impact people's health, people's mental health, and I want to be a part of a community? So if that's the reason, there's no barrier to wanting to continue to do what generations of people before them have done. If the reason is really more economic, I think that's not that's not the right path because medicine is going to continue to evolve. The other thing about medical school is that there's going into a healthcare profession doesn't necessarily necessitate going to medical school. If people want to be a part of that equation, part of a healthcare team, Nursing is wonderful, going to PA school and practicing as a physician's assistant, physical therapy, occupational therapy, audiology. There's lots of ways to impact patients that doesn't require the same amount of sacrifice of both years and the economics of going to medical school, which is certainly challenging in this day and age. The average student coming out is three to $400,000 in debt now from medical school. So it's a real challenge in terms of that economic equation and the return on investment. But I think there's lots of ways to be part of healthcare that are still going to be very fulfilling. And and certainly becoming a physician is still a very noble decision. And I think for the right reasons, you definitely should go. And I have a son who's in that position right now. He's finished with college and he's in the application process for medical school. And, you know, from day to day, I think you're on a high and a low and a high and a low because the process is really grueling. But I think he's got the brains to do it and he he's compassionate and cares about people. And that's the most important part. Ultimately, that's the part that's going to make him a great physician.
0: Yeah, I think you hit it right there. What's your underlying reason? What's your why, right? Like it's Simon Sinek would say, like what's your why? And you get your, you have the right why you can do anything. That's great. How about this? We spoke about so much over the last hour. If you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be?
1: I would say it's pretty much a motto I think people should have be kind to each other, treat people the way you want to be treated. I think that if people in our country could subscribe to that motto, we would live in a much healthier society. I've seen the division in our society become so great over just a short period of time. My lifetime alone, which is obviously a short period of time, 54 years is not a long time. The division is certainly really troubling. And I think if people can not everybody has to agree. Everybody should have independent thought. But we have to be able to agree to disagree and be civil with each other and treat each other with respect and compassion. And so if, if there's anything people can take home from this discussion between you and I, which I very much value and appreciate, is that we take good care of each other and treat each other with respect.
0: Wow, it's our kindness and respect. Raja Gandhi's my religion. Oh, uh, the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. And that's, it's just yeah. so uh, awesome. Two quick fun ones to wrap it up. One, Andrew, if you could spend the day with anyone, alive or dead, historical figure, famous, not famous, who would you spend the day with?
1: I'm going to answer this in twofold. <laughs>
0: Go ahead, hit me, Go. If I
1: could spend the day with anybody, I would spend it with the people I spend it with now, which is my two sons and my wife the people that I value most, my family. But if I was going to want to spend the day with somebody I can't spend a day with anymore, it would be my grandmother, who was a very impactful person for me, who got me through a lot of very tough times as a child who had a chronic illness, who was there for me through medical school when I was questioning my abilities and questioning whether I was going to to make it through the process. And always believed in me. And I would love to just be able to sit down and thank her for everything she did for me and tell her how much she impacted my life. But she unfortunately is not with us anymore and hasn't been for 25 years or more. So that would be the person.
0: Wow. I'm sure she's looking down and she's quite proud. That is awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Last question, Dr. Andrew LaBelle, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say?
1: I'm probably going to botch this, but it's a, an actually a quote from Roger Federer that my one of my sons, my older son, is very fond of. It would be, respect everyone and fear no one.
0: Love it. Respect everyone, fear no one. That is... Oh, I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up, Doctor Andrew Lubell. I'd like to thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for the great tips on sleep, diet, immunizations, mental health. We covered so much. If people are looking for you and your practice and what you do online, where can we find you?
1: True North Docs, T-O-C-S. TrueNorthDocs.com. True North. That's Docs. our website. And you'll be able to find all of our offices, some really great pediatric advice and links to other places that are really helpful. And certainly, we would love to hear from any family that's interested in joining the practice or folks that have interest. One of the things that the healthcare community is struggling with right now is staffing. So if there are compassionate nurses and medical assistants or physicians out there who are looking for a wonderful home, we are available to have that conversation anytime.
0: That is awesome. TrueNorthDocs.com. What I'll do, Andrew, I'm going to put this in the show notes. If anyone's looking for you and you're soon to be 10 practices online, they can find you there. And great to see you. And thank you so much. Great to see you too. I appreciate it. Thank you for all your help and everything you've done. And you're awesome. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Send my love to the family. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app. Or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.